the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Justin. How are you, Lindsay? I mean, I'm stoked for every episode, but this one, I'm so glad you wanted to do. Uh, I'm just really excited to talk about Steel Magnolias. Yeah, I'm glad we uh, chose to do this one uh, for our Dolly December, but we chose to do Steel Magnolias first, so that way we end the year on a lighter movie, 9 to (laughs) 5. Yes. But this is such a great movie, and it's been a great revisit for me because I had not seen this movie probably since uh, watching it in the background for, you know, as my my grandma was watching it when I lived with her for a (laughs) while and not really under, I don't think, like comprehending a lot of what was going on. Um, Just seeing my grandmother like weep, you know, while she was watching the movie at times and then Mm -hmm. just like barrel laughing at, you know, at other times. Oh, yeah. This was one that my entire family could watch but when it came to the sadness that's when my dad would get up and leave the room with unexpectedly in the middle of the story it's like this is my time to exit this is a movie that i think falls in i guess as genre if you want to call it like disease films or that makes it more sound like a horror movie but uh yeah movies that you know deal with some sort of like sickness or ailment and and ultimately, like, the main character dies at the end. And though I think this movie falls into that particular category, I don't, I, and, and don't get me wrong, this movie is pretty gutting, but I don't think it's like a, a lemon to the eyeball. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like it, it has its ebbs and flows and, like, keeps the audience at a level where, you know, you, you have this, like, emotional draw, but it's not, like, this excruciatingly painful thing to watch either. What this movie does is make you laugh through the pain. There are many undercurrents in in this movie, but um, I think that's probably the biggest one. Yeah, just that simply was like the grain for the the idea for this movie, which we will get into in our discussions. We'll talk about how this movie started as a true story and pretty much is uh, close to uh, the story that followed the life of the writer and uh, screenplay writer. Did you know that? Because I didn't know that. I honestly did not know that this was a true story. And that was the first thing I stumbled on whenever we started researching for this. <laughs> and I think I knew that it was based off of a play. But beyond that, I had no clue that it was the actual writer that the movie was based on that wrote the screenplay and adapted the play. I also did not know that this was a true story. And it it makes sense, um, looking back on it, how honest it feels and I was trying to think like you know why do I I I know generally when movies are true stories um and it just I guess it's just you know it wasn't uh it's old enough that I wasn't exactly google searching you know researching uh uh, movies when I was seven years old And I I admire the fact that they didn't throw the uh, based on a true story in in the beginning, because in the 80s, I mean, if there was an opportunity to to slap that label on the beginning of the movie, you know, they would have done it. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk about the true story and how this went from um, a play to an eventual star studded 
movie. Of course, we're going to talk about the cast. This is a expansive cast, impressive, all heavyweights. Even if this movie isn't your speed, just the talent involved is worthwhile. And we'll probably talk a little bit about Herbert Ross, the director, and his adapting a movie that was based on a play into a feature film and kind of talk a little bit about that because there are there have been a lot of movies through history that have been started out as plays and, and transferred to the big screen and sometimes they still feel very little like a play when they're on mm-hmm. the uh, big screen but I think they did a really good job with this one and we'll talk about that too. So the production and then also how much the location played a part in in making this movie as well and of course the lasting legacy that is this movie why do we still care about it i know i'm not the only person who weeps every time that they watch this movie even if you've seen it 87 times yeah a lot to talk about with still magnolias Uh, after that we'll get into our picks of the week i decided to do another shirley mclean movie with postcards from the edge which was also based on a true story I can't wait to hear about that. It's been since that was in regular rotation on HBO since I've seen it. And what was your pick of the week? Um, I went with another Herbert Ross movie, uh, his last film, actually, that he made, and another gut-wrenching one uh, called Boys on the Side. And I, I haven't seen that probably since it came out. I think I saw that in theaters, though. Oh, really? Did you? Aw. I was a big Drew Barrymore fan. That was like a, you know, at the before her transformation into who she's always, she's an ever evolving creature. Ever evolving, yeah. That was like her third comeback or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got mad love for Drew Barrymore. As always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into our first clip from Steel Magnolias, Lindsay, can you just give us a lowdown on just the simply what is the story of this before we get into talking about it? Of course. So six women of all different ages and stages of life are brought together through their close-knit friendship centered around the community of Natchitoches, Louisiana. A local beauty shop brings them together to not only have their hair and nails done, but to share their lives with each other. And this particular story follows the holidays surrounding life-altering events concerning these women, with a main focus on a mother and her diabetic daughter's desire to live her life to the fullest without constraints. And together, these six women go through the most beautiful and difficult times together, further solidifying their lifelong bond to one another. That was great, Lindsay. I mean, it's like there's a main storyline, but there's so many other storylines, but it's really just about these women, you know. It is very much a a movie about just, it's a hang movie. You know, a lot of of people uh, hanging out, talking. Yeah, it's a hang movie. They're basically like, just put these ladies on the porch on Friday. I mean, it's the same thing. Exactly. Well, uh, we'll get into our first clip here. It's been, uh, this movie is a lot about kind of hanging in there and dealing with the roughness of life. You know, it's been a, it's been a rough year, but we're almost through this thing, if you can believe it. We're, we, we've made it through this damn 2020 year just about. So we hope, you know, this moment will give you some time to relax. We'll listen to a clip from Still Magnolias and then we'll get into discussing this thing. So we'll be right back. Oh, Shelby. Oh, honey, what have you done to yourself? It doesn't hurt. Milan, have you seen this? Yes, I have. Well, the doctor's just trying to strengthen my veins. They're in terrible shape. God, Shelby, it looks like you've been driving nails up your arms. What is going on? Shall we tell them, Mama? 
Well, I guess we can't keep it a secret any longer. Shelby has been driving nails up her arm. It's my dialysis. It's no big thing. Well, don't look at me like that. Having Jack Jr. put too much strain on my kidneys now, they're kaput, that's all. The doctor said this would probably happen. That's all? That's all, she says. Do you do this dialysis forever? Well, I could, I suppose, but that's not real convenient when you're trying to keep up with Jack Jr., so I'll just have a kidney transplant, I'll be fine. Is it that easy? Sure. They do them all the time in Shreveport, three or four a week. They do. Our Sunday school class was just praying for one the other day. But the hard part is finding the kidney, isn't it? I saw something about it on TV. Very dramatic. These medical teams fly all over the place, taking hearts and kidneys and who knows what else. You know what impressed me the most? They carry those organs in beer coolers. Oh, stop it. Those doctors take out their six-packs, throw in some dry ice and a heart, and get on a plane. How long do you have to wait for one? Well, there are people on dialysis that have been waiting for years. That must be agony. Well, I suppose, but I'm lucky I don't have to wait anymore. Mama's gonna give me one of her kidneys. We check in tomorrow morning. So like we said in the beginning here, neither of us knew that this was based on a true story. But of course, after hearing that and and watching the film several times in the last few weeks, it's really evident to me that this was a story that feels so genuine and real and the characters seem so rich. And uh, it was sad and wonderful to learn about how this writer um, came to produce a screenplay and the makings of it and and how he's still so emotionally connected to the story even today. It really is so moving that Robert Harling, the writer, is so affected still by the loss of his sister. Not that, you know, you shouldn't be, you have to get over that in any certain amount of time. No, that's always with you. Um, But knowing that he was so affected to write such a movie like this is, is so impactful. Um, So Steel Magnolias is about his sister, Susan, who was his best friend. And when she was 12, um, she was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. And this was something that ran in their family. Her uncle had actually passed away uh, from this before. So that's why her mother, even as we see in Steel Magnolias, is very cautious of everything that she does. But as she is portrayed in the movie, um, Susan, or Shelby, is vibrant and there's just nothing that would ever slow her down. And like in Steel Magnolias, um, she does get pregnant and give birth to a little boy. And in real life, his name was Robert, like his uncle and their father. And it was soon after that that her body kind of started to go into kidney failure. And like we see in the movie, her mom really does offer up her kidney. And they go ahead and do a kidney transplant. And the surgery is completed, um, but it is not a success. It's not known immediately, but soon after Susan goes back in for what they think is going to be just a small surgery to put a stint into something to do with her dialysis. And that was in 85 and it was actually on her birthday. Uh, she went in for that and she, she never came back out. So that was, um, I mean, it's pretty much everything that we see in Steel Magnolias and Harling really tried to stay true 
to his sister's story, but it just absolutely crushed him. And five months later, Susan's husband got remarried. And that was yet another blow to her brother, Robert Harling, the writer. And he was hurt by this and then heard, you know, her son call his new stepmom mama. And it just like kind of sent him into a lot of different emotions, a lot of rage. Like think about how Sally Field is at the funeral scene. Like that's what he was feeling. So he's filled with a lot of emotions and and goes back to New York kind of filled with rage and just upset and devastated over the loss of his sister. And also thinking, you know, his little nephew isn't going to know his mother and know what she gave up for him. Just like what Malin says in, in Steel Magnolias, you get how like true to life this movie is. So what he does is he, at the behest and encouragement of his theater friends, he puts it down on paper. And so he starts writing a short story. But what he finds while he's writing the short story is that he's missing a certain aspect. And that's the community feel, the dialogue between the colorful characters that he grew up with, the wit and sensibility of the women that were in his sister Susan's friend group. So he thinks, okay, I'm going to do a one act instead. And soon that one act just blows up into a full-blown play. I found a few sources saying that he just kind of cranked this out in 10 days once he once he figured out where he was going with it. And there are some stark differences between what we see in Steel Magnolias and the play, but primarily it's just that the movie has more added to it. The play itself takes place entirely in Truvy's beauty parlor, which when you think about it in a a play setting, that's something that can totally happen with a movie like this. But the way that the movie's set up, it's that idea of being a play is completely abandoned. So it opens off Broadway in 87 and just kind of opens to immediate critical acclaim and like people start going out and seeing it. Word of mouth is getting around and soon like celebrities are going out to see it and people are saying, you know, you need to go see this. This needs to be a movie. And there's all this like kind of buzz around it. Um, It gets the attention of the future producer of Steel Magnolias, Ray Stark. And that's where this kind of takes a whole other uh, trajectory. So after producer Ray Stark saw the play, he mentioned it to his longtime uh, friend and collaborator, director Herbert Ross, who had about 18 feature films under his belt at that point, um, but also came from the theater directing world. He was also a choreographer for a long time, so Ray Stark knew that Herbert Ross should see this play. Herbert Ross went and saw the play, was immediately smitten, thought, you know, this would be a great idea to turn this thing into a movie. Um, he had already adapted a multiple plays into feature films earlier in his career. So this wasn't going to be something that he wasn't unfamiliar with. You know, he kind of seemed like the perfect director to adapt uh, this stage play into a feature film. So it wasn't long after uh, Herbert Ross saw the play that he contacted playwright Robert Harleen and wanted to do a full-on collaboration with him, you know, work together in adapting this to a feature film. And so Robert Harleen then, you know, made the stretch to start writing the screenplay and and adapting the characters and also adding a few characters along the way to flush it out as a full-blown movie. Pretty much everything that took place in the play was like 
put into the movie as well. They tried to change things as soon as, soon as Herbert Ross uh, came into the picture. You know, they were thinking about ideas of like, okay, how can we make this like a little less claustrophobic? Because in the play, the majority of the story, almost everything takes place in the uh, beauty salon. Doing the movie, there was a way to say, you know, we're going to have the wedding. We're going to show where some of these uh, characters live. We're going to show the town. And so, you know, it became a much more expansive project once the script was underway. So Robert Harling is developing this screenplay um, under the direction of Herbert Ross. And they're really doing a great collaboration of, of ideas on this. And once everything is kind of solidified and production starts on the film, um, there was a, a writer strike at the time. And that meant that Robert Harling couldn't be on the set during filming, which is, I mean, for for some writers, that's fine. But a, a lot of times you want to be able to have access to, to the writer to rewrite anything, to help you with something. And especially when this is a true story to someone's life. Somehow, I don't know how they got around it, but they basically, they did a big union no-no and flew Robert Harling out kind of secretly and had him had him kind of hidden away, but he was definitely on set for uh, any type of maybe I don't think that they were officially doing any type of rewrites, but you know, he was there. I just love that this story was so important to not only him, but Herbert Ross and everyone involved that it it would have felt wrong to not have him there. And one of the biggest changes from the play to the movie and is one of my favorite things about it, is how it marks the passage of time. So we have quite a few scenes that take place in the in the beauty parlor, like in the play, but it also um, plays around holidays. And it does this full circle thing that you don't even notice. Like we start out at Easter and the movie ends at Easter. And we've gone through this whole kind of like life cycle of what has happened in the world of these women. And it's just kind of a beautiful way to tell the story, especially when you're thinking of how can I adapt this and make it the same story, but add so much into it. I love how intimate it is. You know, I, I love that they, they still tried to keep the, the tightness of the beauty salon um, and have all them kind of jam packed in there in the dialogue, just sort of like rapid fire back and forth. It's that Southern, you know, charm, wit, and I do wonder if there was anyone that was offended when this movie came out or if, you know, people look back on it and can be offended just because of any type of generalization of any, you know, folk. But there's really nothing negative in the portrayal of the this community from Natchitoches. Yeah, and I think uh, just that community alone, the, you know, talking about how uh, genuine the movie feels and, and how much love was put into the script. The town itself of Natchitoches, Louisiana was used to film the entirety of the movie. It really, I think, makes uh, makes the movie much more personal, even uh, down to uh, so many of the townspeople that were, were in the movie, you know, became extras. Um, yeah, you know, all the actors like, you know, moved there and stayed there for four months to do the movie, you know, really got to know the town, got to meet uh, Robert Harling's family. And, you know, there's, you know, we talked about this in Almost Famous, There, you know, there's always that pressure of like, not only are you, you portraying this person's life, but they're right there and they've like laid it out for you in the script, you know, and you want to do that justice. And I think that would have been kind of tough if they 
did this in LA and like, you know, tried to set up these Southern facades of like a, a street square and like on a stage did the beauty salon. Yeah. Um, I think it really probably lent to the authenticity of, of the actors uh, performances. And, you know, it was at the behest of Herbert Ross that they film on location. I don't, think that Robert Harling like thought that that was a possibility and when Ross brought it up to him he just was like um yeah yeah that's a that's a great idea and this town Natchitoches really hadn't seen a giant movie crew move in and this place really became a home to the actors and I think maybe after a little while it got maybe traffic started building up it got a little annoying in some ways but I for the most part, it was a great experience, and townspeople loved having them there. The actors and crew loved being there, and there were actually locals who were. It became this badge of honor to uh, give up your house for, during the time of filming to some of whoever, whatever actor needed a needed a house to stay in while they were there. Man, I would have done that. Are you kidding me? Give my up my house to Dolly Parton? You're yes. Another thing that made it so real to the community it was based in is, and this was brilliant, I don't know if other crews do this, um, but they went to all the local thrift stores and just basically cleaned them out for wardrobes. It's, I mean, it's just brilliant. Use the clothes of, of the community that you are filming in. It makes so much sense. And pretty much everything was shot uh, on location, in houses, at schools, in hospitals. Um, and the only thing, the only constructed set, I believe, was the beauty parlor. It always blows me away, the movie magic of set design and, and mm-hmm. making something look like it's been there for like 20 to 50 years. And also the magic of making it look like it's not 110 degrees, like it was the whole time that they were filming, evidently. It was like over 100 and humid and you never really get that feel in this movie because it takes place at multiple different times in uh, throughout the years, and I never get that sense. And uh, speaking of that beauty salon, I think the biggest strengths of Herbert Ross being a choreographer and, and coming from the theater and stage world is the blocking that is done in those beauty parlor scenes is pretty awesome because there's so much going on and having every character look like they have something that they're supposed to be doing and they're doing it. There's so much movement going on and there's so much exchange of dialogue. Specifically that scene where Julia Roberts is first in the beauty parlor and she has the diabetic attack, you know, where it's like slowly building and the tension's kind of building and they're cutting around. They're even using the sound of like the hair dryer is kind of like goes on in the background. When you watch that scene the second or third time, you can kind of see that each character is doing their own thing. They're reacting to it in the way their character does. No one again, like looks like they're just sort of like, what am I supposed to be doing here? And I know that sounds silly, but there's a ton of movies that I watch where the foreground, the main actors are blocked out, but then secondary characters and background characters, they're just kind of like trying to act like they're doing something, but it doesn't look like they've been given like a direction on like, no, you should move here, move over there, grab that, and then get back involved in the scene. And that movie's so intense because everybody seems to be such a big part of it. And it's such a small little space. He still keeps it pretty... um, closed in you know he doesn't do a lot of cutaways like you know he keeps the action almost in one big shot but it also feels cinematic it feels cinematic without having a master shot really of anything because you don't have the room for it it's just it's very intimate 
um, and a lot of, of close-ups that really communicate all of the emotions that are happening in that. And I think along with all of the blocking, the, the timing of everything, when you understand that Herbert Ross was a choreographer and knowing that all of these actresses are so professional and so well-seasoned, it makes sense that it works so like it, it looks effortless. It looks real. Along with the desire to uh, want this movie to have a real feel, when you have professionals involved that know how something works and just kind of know instinctually, um, it that's what it's going to look like. And I think ideally, isn't that what you know you strive for in a movie? Is to you imagine that you want it to be, you want it to look as real as possible. Yeah. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I do love the way Herbert Ross staged the seasonal changes, you know, because they they do live in an area that has four seasons. And I do love that they show passage of time by showing the holidays, but they don't do it in a cheesy or like super obvious, like ridiculous way. I feel like it's it's subtle enough and it's either, you know, holidays or events that take place in a town um, which is when I think all these characters would meet up. You know, it, it makes the movie feel more natural. Like they're not going over to each other's houses every day. You know, they meet up in the salon, but then they meet up when the town has, you know, like uh, some sort of like event or some sort of party. And then, you know, there's a wedding party, there's holiday parties. And I think that's a good way to kind of like show passage of time, discuss what's happened, catch the audience up on what's happened, you know, over the course of the last three months without cheapening anything and keeping us up to date. It feels like we've watched them over two years, even though those last two years take place and maybe just like the last 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah, you forget that the first half of the movie is all of Shelby's wedding. Pretty much it's like the wedding and and wedding party. And with, with all of these things, um, like when the holidays start happening, I think why it doesn't feel cheesy is because the holidays are more just to establish the time, that time has passed. We're not dwelling upon the holiday. It's just a reason for these people to get together, like you said. And with all of these things, generally they are big events. All of these things have massive, well-staged scenes. When you see so many people involved in one scene, you can think that it's all just happenstance. It's just there. They're just, you're just told to like mill around. That's not how these scenes work at all. And so you see these expansive, massive party scenes, whether they're outside or inside somebody's house, all of these are choreographed. It really is such a feat to watch that in this movie. And and I'm not a big fan of like wedding scenes, you know, like the day of the wedding. And I think this move, this movie is like one of the few where I don't mind it at all. Because they don't really dwell on too much of the main moments of a wedding that we've all experienced not seeing the movie. You know, it's like how many weddings have, have you know, everybody has, has been to in their life. You don't need to see all those special moments in the movie beat for beat. So I like that it kind of deals with like the craziness of pre-everybody arriving, um, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff that, you know, we don't, we aren't always like privy to. Well, and it starts in the middle. Basically, it starts in the middle of all yeah. of these things happening. So we're not establishing, you know, like something is just starting and we're we're gearing up with everybody. It's already in action. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, we're not go- we're not just it's not just hitting us with the, uh, you know, here are people show up. Now we're going to hit the, the vows. Now we're going to hit the them cutting the cake together. Um, you know, it's like we're seeing um, uh, moments that are, are, are just like sporadic throughout the day. It feels like a Herbert Ross 
uh, was very deliberate in what he chose to show and what he wanted to omit, like where the what he wanted you to feel and what he wanted to keep out. We didn't need to see Shelby getting married. We didn't need to see Shelby die. We knew what was happening. And that's a really smart thing to do. And he does it throughout the movie. It's like something that I think makes the movie move a lot faster because we're not spending so much time on stuff that we don't need to beat into the ground. And uh, one final thing just to close on as far as like just to state, you know, just Herbert Ross's contribution to this movie and and kind of the way that they they broke the movie up. There's a lot of characters in this movie and they do spend a little bit of time on showing those characters by themselves or like in their own lives individually. But I think it's done in a really great way where I don't feel like we're like jumping all over the town, like nonstop. They're layered in really well to where we get these moments where two actors are together away from the group and you, you get to spend a little time with them, but just the perfect amount to where I feel like I, I know everybody in the movie, but I also don't feel like this is like a soap opera where like every two minutes we're like, now we're going to show these two. Now we're going to show these two. Now we're going back to the parlor. Now we're going to these two. I, I just feel like that's one of the biggest strengths of, of this movie is um, really getting into all the characters of the town without, again, like I said, like jumping all over the place. Yeah, it's giving you exactly what you need. You learn about their lives through what they imply through their conversations or what they don't say or what they leave and then you see in their private life. And that's, I mean, that's giving some credit to the audience and also to the writer that these characters are rich enough that you are, you you know who they are. You've been bonding with them um, right along with the entire movie. Yeah, and I, and I also too like love how quick the dialogue is. You know, it's it's again trusting the audience that they're going to get all the information without having to like re-explain stuff to the audience or re-explain you know what her illness is or like what she has to do. I mean, it's there while they they discuss it, but we don't just keep going back back to it to t- try to like make sure everybody in the audience like understands 100% what's going on. I mean, yeah. it's all clear, but you know, movies can really like overemphasize certain things, especially when there's like information that's going to come back later on in the movie that, you know, you kind of need to know about. Yeah, it was a smart way to introduce the fact that Shelby is diabetic by showing her in the middle of an attack and you see how everyone reacts. So you know that it's already understood that everyone knows this, they're kind of already prepared for it, and that there's only one person in the room that's not prepared and is like, should I call a doctor? And she's the one that's new to town. Um, And it is just a very brilliant way to understand that these women um, already have such a a close, familiar relationship with each other. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll talk more about their characters and the uh, cast um, in detail uh, when we get back, we're going to go to another clip from Still Magnolias. All righty. Today, my daughter told me a big secret. Daddy. No, nah, no, nah, don't worry, honey. I'm not going to tell him you're pregnant. I'm just going to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to tell him I'm going to be a granddaddy. <laughs> said Shelby couldn't have children. Yeah, what do they know? I guess she showed them. The doctor said she shouldn't have children. There's a big difference. 
This baby is not exactly great news. Jackson and Shelby. <laughs> I had some words of wisdom, but I don't. So why don't we just focus on the joy of the situation? It'll be fine. Absolutely. You know what they say? That which does not kill us makes us stronger. <laughs> Nothing pleases Shelby more than proving me wrong. <laughs> Just looking at the poster of this movie, there's six huge actresses with their names going across the top. And when the movie starts, it, it is kind of deceiving a little bit because you're thinking like, okay, is this all about Julia Roberts' character or is it about Daryl Hannah's character because she's the unknown in the town and she starts out the movie, she's applying for a job for Dolly Parton's salon. At first, you know, you're really not sure, like, is there going to be a central character? And I really like the fact that there's really not. There's so much shared screen time amongst all six characters that... Um, not only is this an ensemble piece, but you also feel like you're getting enough screen time with each character that it kind of feels like there's six leads, which to me kind of makes it all the more great that they decided to go with the biggest possible names you could find in, in 1989 to play the main actors in this. And I don't necessarily know if that is something that's always going to work. I think that it is a gamble sometimes, and I didn't get the drift that anyone really thought of that. From what I understand, Sally Field was the first one thought of to be in this movie, but everyone really has kind of equal billing. And from everything that I've seen, it was such a nurturing and democratic experience just for everyone. Those words are coming right from Shirley MacLaine at that time was probably considered the actor with the most longevity of all of them. You know, with egos and everything you've ever read about actors, you know, it's like egos and, and stealing scenes and, and sharing screen time. You have all these huge names and it's not even like they're, they have the, I mean, they, they have their separate scenes, but there's, there's a, a large amount of movie where like all five or six are on screen at the same time or within the area, within the scene. And so that's a lot of give and take between actors. And yeah, from everything I've read, it was like this like symbiotic relationship, like everybody worked with each other. Julie Roberts, it seems strange now, but she was she was the newcomer. Everybody was like taking under their wing because she had only been in, you know, a handful of roles, you know, a couple TV roles and like one or two movies. It is really nutty to think about the first big movie of Julia Roberts' career um, and her being the lowest on the totem pole but everyone had um it seems like everyone had such a good experience and even with uh julia roberts i mean i'm not trying to talk any smack here or whatever but in in more recent years it has kind of come out that uh the director wasn't so kind to her and kind of yeah was not the not the greatest to her and kind of like questioned her ability to do the role and she went to some of the other actors in, in her company and was like, what do I do? What do I need to do? And everyone basically had her back and was like, you're doing fine. Let's just let's just work on some things and helping her 
ease into ease into the role. So they were dropping knowledge on her because I mean, Shirley MacLaine, Olympia Dukakis, Sally Field. I mean, hell, even Dolly Parton had been around the block for a while and, and Daryl Hannah too. And she was just kind of picking up pieces of information and, and working with what she had and also coming into her own. And it really feels like that Steel Magnolias helped her do that. I don't think that there's anything in her performance. There's nothing in her performance where I've ever felt like, man, this is the one Julia Roberts movie. Just, yeah, it doesn't work. She earned her first Oscar nomination for her performance yeah. in Steel Magnolias. She's incredible. And I feel like there's many, many scenes where you see the early makings of that that sort of persona that Julia Roberts has perfected over the last, like, you know, two or three decades. But for the other actors in this movie, uh, we were seeing a different side of what they had played before on screen. I like that this is a movie where a lot of people were playing a little bit off type than than what uh, audiences had known them for. I think Sally Field was the, the safest bet in this movie. That woman, I mean, doesn't really matter what she's been in over her entire career. She's going to nail everything. She's such a pro. Having Sally Field play the nurturing, over-caring mother, yeah, she's going to nail that like 300%. But everybody else, Shirley MacLaine is playing against type. Daryl Hannah is definitely playing against type. Like She's considered the the ugly one of the group, and she's not even unattractive but almost but, unrecognizable in the beginning i mean <laughs> it, a little bit but really yeah. she's it's just because she's what has different colored hair and is wearing glasses and i might add that those glasses are her actual real glasses yeah. so i mean just saying but daryl hannah did really connect with that character she was um auditioning for the role of shelby for julie roberts part and that's what herbert ross really saw her doing and upon further investigation into the script she really connected with the role of Anel and kind of had to not twist anybody's arm but she had to prove to Herbert Ross that she could do that role and from from Daryl Hannah's description it just sounded like she just needed to come in in some glasses and like her normal clothes and she nailed it yeah I didn't realize that Daryl <laughs> Hannah was uh, such a shy and and really um, was scared to do like interviews and stuff like that. That her real life persona is, is much like um, her character in the movie. And in her other performances, she's not really over the top, but she's not understated. She's just the beautiful bombshell, you know, that you're picking your jaw up off the floor at, you know. But in Steel Magnolias, when Anel comes into her own, she she is kind of over the top and knowing that Daryl Hannah herself is so soft-spoken and shy and definitely was among the the cast of this bunch in this movie. Um, it, it's really amazing knowing what someone's like in their private life and then seeing them on screen and playing something completely different. Um, I, I love this role of Daryl Hannah's. It's probably one of my favorites of hers. And another actor playing against type is Shirley MacLaine, who I think is possibly the most dominant figure of of all the the women in this movie and that's her portrayal of Weezer the old crotchety um, rich yet yet uh, wise and oftentimes crude but hysterically funny uh, character and I think she gets some of the biggest laughs in the movie and it is funny that 
Weezer has so many memorable lines and that she is probably one of the most beloved characters in all of Steel Magnolias. Because from what I understand with interviews from Robert Harling is that, well, one, the character, the name Weezer, that that person was actually named after uh, a woman by name, the name of Weezer, spelled differently, but was the best friend of Robert's sister, Susan Shelby. But she was a much different person, not at all uh, the character that Shirley MacLaine plays. That person is is another woman who, I guess, uh, Robert Harling just loathed, loathed growing up. And so this was his revenge, was to... <laughs> forever immortalize this woman and it's it's somewhat ironic then that she ends up the most beloved in her portrayal uh, it just kind of pops on screen like immediately just her introduction is so <laughs> it's such a big introduction you know where her like dog is pulling her and she's like yelling and all the other characters are are like wait well you know they all they all know her you know to be yeah. like boisterous but she immediately starts interrogating Daryl Hannah's character and, tr- you know, trying to get information out of her. And, mm-hmm. and she's like, I know everybody in this town, but I don't know you. And it, it really, um, I think is a good way to like incorporate not only like showing how small this town is, but showing that, you know, she kind of says it how it is. And she's like, you know, people are only nice to me because I'm, I've got more money than God <laughs> is like her line. Um, one line of many. Yeah. But also, too, we see a sweeter side of her, like, later on, uh, she makes, you know, like, a off-color comment about, you know, her body giving out, and then, you know, she re- regrets that once she finds out that Julie Roberts' character uh, needs a kidney transplant. She's talking to Olympia Dukakis and in, in, at the grocery store and kind of saying, you know, I shouldn't have said that, and Olympia Dukakis says, you know, you'd give your kidney to your dog if you had to. You know, it's like you you're tough, but you also care about people. And it's moments like that, I think, that really show like, again, we get these individual moments with these characters and we see the true bond that they have. You know, and we see that uh, friends, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certain anybody can relate to this, that like a lot of times your friends can be closer to you and stronger than, you know, your actual blood relatives. Ain't that the truth? Shirley MacLaine, this performance was something that is still always going to be one of my favorites of hers. I, of course, love her in the Children's Hour. I did that as a pick of the week a while back. But she really is an an incredible performer, dancer, and to opt to do a role like this, playing a character, one, when you're a woman, especially in the late 80s, and you're playing a character that's older than you and bravely going and no makeup, that takes some guts. I mean, that really takes some guts as an actor. And I got to I got to hand it to her. She's amazing in this role and to play a character that is as gruff as she is but has the heart. Man, that's the character I would want to play too. And Herbert Ross when he he went to her and he said I've got the script. I want you to read it. He gave her the play, I think. Yeah, it was the play version and said which you know, which character do you want to play? The role of Malin and Truvy have already been cast, but, you know, pick pick what you want. And he was kind of questioning the fact that she went with Weezer, but she really just, she connected with that character, and that was the one she wanted. Really, I, I think, like, one of the, the highlights of this movie is just her rattling off 
just one of, <laughs> of, of a million great one-liners. Oh, he's a real gentleman. Bet he takes the dishes out of the sink before he pees in it. Um, and 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 moving, you know, uh, Shirley MacLaine being, you know, such a screen legend. Moving on to another screen legend that that was used to kind of round out the cast, uh, Olympia Dukakis. Olympia Dukakis had been around for many, many years. She's a stage actress, still is. But two years prior to Steel Magnolias, she had just won the Oscar for Moonstruck. Love that movie. Never get tired of that one either. And she's phenomenal in that as well. Sally Field described her kind of as the Mother Earth of of everyone. She was just kind of, she just brought everyone together. And you would think with someone, especially of, of her caliber, and it's not, maybe she wasn't as known in film as Shirley MacLaine, but she was certainly known in the theater and acting community. And of course, after after Moonstruck, um, that maybe there could have been some, you know, butting of heads or something with she and Shirley MacLaine because many of their scenes are together. Their feistiness that is between them, um, that's some real chemistry. That's not that they, you know, were fighting for screen time or anything like that. They both were playing off of each other so well. Like Olympia knew what Shirley was going to react to and vice versa. And I think that something like that can easily be seen in the scene after uh, Shelby's funeral when um, after the epic scene, my God, that performance that Sally Field does at the funeral where Olympia Dukakis's character, Clary, is trying to make up with Weezer because she's kind of done something somewhat insulting and funny and rude but funny. And there, this whole scene that happens on a bench with them, like pushing each other, shoving each other, all of that's improv. Like they, they made it up on the spot and you can see how Olympia's pushing her. She's nudging her. And then she knows that Shirley is going to bring it back even more. And so the falling off of the bench, that wasn't planned. That just happened. And you see the realness that happens between those two actors. And that's also the mark of two actors that can really go with a scene and know when something's working. It's like time and time again, these actors really drive home the fact that they make you feel like the, the, these are there's such this tight bond between them. And they all became huge friends uh, during the filming of this and uh, from w- what it s- sounds like in interviews that, uh, you know, they adored each other and continued to uh, keep up friendships, you know, well after this movie was filmed. And for Dolly Parton, being a part of this cast was something that was kind of new in a way. She had been in films before, 9 to 5 and uh, Rhinestone, uh, but not necessarily a movie that wasn't a Dolly Parton movie. And this wasn't this wasn't her thing. She was part of the cast. She was part of the group and she integrated very well. And in the same way that, say, you know, Sally Field, Shirley MacLaine, Olympia Dukakis, Daryl Hannah and and Julia Roberts. But in, in the same way that all of them could be intimidating, Dolly Parton was coming from a whole other world that like none of them had anything to do with. So she could be intimidating in some ways. So it is really still impressive to me that all six of these women gelled so well together and that the spirit that is contained within Steel Magnolias just kind of transferred over to them in real life. It's really beautiful. And 
kind of, I don't know, in some spiritual sense, I don't know, um, goes along with the, the magic of, of this true story of, of, uh, Susan Harling's life. Just, um, just, it all kind of came together in such a beautiful way. And the actors play such a, I mean, I know we talk about the cast so much in, in the podcast, but for Steel Magnolias, this cast is, um, the, the heart of the film. Yeah, and I wanted to add too with with Dolly Parton, you know, just getting a little extra in there because it is Dolly December. Same way I feel with Daryl Hannah, this being her best role. I think this is Dolly Parton's best role. It almost feels just catered for her like persona. Dolly Parton just has a way, just her inflection, just the way she talks, even in interviews, it's so warm and inviting, even though she's like has her own theme park and is a multimillionaire and is like internationally known as like a, a American treasure, American icon. You feel like you could have a cup of coffee with her and like not be <laughs> nervous because she just has a way to has a cadence in her voice and this like way she speaks. It's like so natural and so inviting, you know, she really feels like the heart of the movie, like the warmth of, mm-hmm. of still Magnolias. One of the most wonderful things and and it's so Dolly Parton that I heard about Steel Magnolias was that originally she had been asked to uh, do some songs for for the film which you know would make sense and she did write them recorded them and they I'm not sure if like footage was viewed with the songs integrated into it or they just heard the songs but it was pretty unanimous including Dolly Parton that the songs just didn't fit the spirit of the movie. And I think when you're someone that is famous and well-known and could basically dictate anything you want, like Dolly Parton, she could have forced those songs to be in there. I'm positive. She said that there was like a contract written up, everything. It was all legit. But she felt at the end of the day, it just didn't work, you know, and this wasn't her movie. And if those songs would have been in there, it would have become a Dolly Parton movie. And that's just not what it was about. I think that's amazing that she did that. It just shows such a level of like concern for the movie being tasteful and not, not it just being about her, like, you know, it being about the whole picture. I don't know that, that every artist, like musical artist turned actor would, would settle for that. You know, I feel like they'd, want to get their songs in the movie yeah and in something like best little whorehouse in texas it makes sense you know and you can take the songs from that movie and play them on tour it makes sense but just in something like this where dolly gets just as much equal screen time as everyone else but it's the integrity of the movie that's what's important to her and i think had she been a no-name person and asked to do this film, I think she would have done the same thing. I think that above all else, she's always thinking about the overall integrity of whatever she's working on. Absolutely. I guess we need to mention like the couple guys involved in Steel Magnolias, you think, Justin? Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, it's like they're I, I, I actually like kinda like the fact that the the guys are just so far in the background in this movie, <laughs> but yet they went ahead and got like, you know, Tom Skerritt and Sam Shepard to really, you know, I mean, I think like well-rounded, well-known, great actors to play these like very small roles that really aren't really pivotal roles, really. I mean, Sam Shepard's only in like three scenes, but he's really effective. And I think that it was smart to get 
really good actors to play to 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 make the most of their tiny screen time. And Sam Shepard's character of Spud, Truvy's husband, wasn't included in the play. He was written for the movie. And he really does, yeah, he adds a lot uh, to this film in his just few scenes with Truvy. You you understand more about her character and relationship. And as far as Tom Skerritt, I love Tom Skerritt. I've always kind of loved the guy. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never disliked him in a movie. And I watched Picket Fences that show that he was in like all every season. I love Tom Skerritt. He is strangely adorable, even if he is a little, little pissant. A lot in this movie, especially towards Weezer. And even if his relationship with Malin seems a little strange, he plays this character um, very well. You know, like he's snarky in a lot of scenes, but then when it comes to, say, the night before Shelby's surgery, he's not cool with like the joking that's happening in his family. And like he's he's the only dissenting opinion that's like, hey guys, I'm not down with these jokes. You can see that he has some heart and Tom Skerritt is able to pull that off effortlessly. Yeah, it's like he was born to play dad roles. Oh, yeah, he really was. <laughs> uh, and Poison Ivy. How could we yeah. forget him with Poison <laughs> Ivy? Okay. Um, Dylan McDermott. We can't forget to mention him. And he was, uh, this was before he was the big name actor that he is today. I feel like he plays like a really good just kind of meathead in this movie. You think he's a meathead? I feel kind of like he's a meathead. You know, he's like a he's, he's like supposed a, to be like an attorney though. Yeah, but he kind of you know I feel like he comes off as kind of a meathead. He's kind of a dope, maybe not meathead, like kind of a dopey. Dopey is he's the dopey. Word. He's dopey to Malin when yeah. Malin's trying to be real with him at their wedding, and and he's kind of brushing her off and like, yeah, yeah, you're being a mom, and she's like, listen, she's she's um wanting him to be a little bit more serious when, yeah, you're right. He's a little dopey. He's, he he could be a little bit more aware of, um, you know, the Shelby's delicate situation. But he's um, he is really great in this role. And uh, Kevin J. O'Connor, uh, who plays uh, the boyfriend of Daryl Hannah's Anel, I think does like a great job of being someone who's like very smitten with her in the beginning and then very frustrated as she makes her transition into a a God fearing woman and wants, you know, really wants him to like stop drinking and, and start going to church with her and start praying all the time. And I I think he's in, I think he has one of the, you know, he's, he, he gets the, he gets the big end credit, uh, you know, hilarious scene of being dressed up as an Easter bunny and, and putting on the the Easter bunny mask while driving away on a motorcycle as the as as credit ro- as the credits roll. That's a pretty good moment. I think my favorite Sammy part is where Nell's mad that he has beer in the fridge, and he's like, "Oh Jesus Christ! What did you say? Christ, 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 Christ!" <laughs> that whole. You really see how he's uh he's just fed up with Anel being uh being a god fearing woman. But we see later on in that scene that you're talking about that we end with, where that is the circle of life. We have another birth, another rebirth, yeah. even after Shelby's passed away. We see that Anel has evolved too, and that she's not as strict as she is about her her god fearing ways. The, the evolution of all of these characters in the limited time that we get with them. I mean, maybe you pick this up on the first time through. I, I can't say 
it's so hard for me to say that I've seen this movie a billion times. I can't even remember the first time. But I do feel like you can pick up on those things if you're paying attention and watching the evolution of these characters with just the little bits that you're given. Yeah, I don't think we can say it enough that the the cast of this is just phenomenal. You know, it, it's it's really uh, if you're looking for, for a movie that's you know like a re- really good drama that that has a you know a movie where it's like an actor's movie that this is, this is definitely one to, to sit down and enjoy. Um, and we talked about it earlier in discussion one, but to kind of get a little bit deeper on that, uh, you know, the fact that this was all filmed in the town that, that Robert Harling and his sister lived, it, there was a lot more to it than that. A lot of the actual real people that, that were friends with, uh, Robert Harling's family, you know, they were extras in this movie all the way down to the, the doctors that actually treated his sister, Susan, when she was ill, they're the, they're the doctors that are treating Julia Roberts character in the movie. Even his, uh, you know, his real mom was there watching the scene where Julia Roberts is in the hospital and, you know, they, they were like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, do you, you don't want to like relive this scene and, you know, she wanted to do it so she could see Julia Roberts playing her daughter, like, actually get up and walk away after the oh. scene was over. And that was really heartbreaking to hear. When I heard that, it just shattered me. I mean, there are so many moments in this movie that are just heartbreaking, um, that being one of them. And as far as the real-life people playing these actors, man, did you know that the nurse who actually unplugs Shelby in the movie? Ugh is the same nurse who unplugged Susan. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, there's such a level of catharsis involved that it almost feels like I don't want to know that the first time I watch this movie because I feel like it would be too much because 30 years later learning this, it's too much, you know? Um, but I really love that for Robert Harling and his family that they were able to incorporate so many actors from, you know, from the town, everybody, everybody in party scenes, from glee club singers, everyone involved were mostly all people who knew the Harling family. And that's really something special. And if there's anything, you know, that can be said, like at the end of the day, you know, Susan Harling is still gone. Um, all of these people were affected by her, but, you know, in her wake, uh, there was something like this that was, uh, paying tribute to her and she'll always be remembered and be forever immortalized in this movie as will the spirit of the town and being able to see everyone from Natchitoches. And it's amazing to me how uh, just over 30 years later, you know, in retrospects of this movie, um, people are still traveling to that town to to do tours, um, to visit it. But people that love this movie, they're fans of the movie. And even the people of the town only have fond memories of this movie being filmed there. They love the fact they love talking about it. It's it wasn't this burden on the town that this huge Hollywood production came and disrupted their lives. They were they they did it with you know, welcomed that welcomed the the Hollywood production with open arms. And this was a uh, you know a story that you don't really hear all the time. A lot of times you know you hear about it like yeah they, it, it like sucked. They were closing down streets and it was terrible. <laughs> but everybody you know but they involved the town so much in the production and in the movie that it, it became this sort of like you know like you said like this. Uh, remembrance uh, immortalizing uh, Robert Harling's sister 
and it's something really special, you know, it's, it's, and it's got to be cool to live in a town. I mean, me and you are big movie buffs. We love going to movie locations. It's got to be feel amazing to uh, walk around in your town and, and say, yeah, the, you know, this huge, you know, movie that people are still talking about, you know, 30 years later. Um, all this was yeah. filmed, you know, right, right on the street, right around the corner here. So, Justin, maybe we should take a little trip. You want to take take this podcast on the road? I, I'm, I'm, I've been talking about taking the podcast on the we, road for, for a long time. Dude, wait, we can hit, okay, we can hit Steel Magnolias and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, 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 was, I was thinking <laughs> it in my head as you were saying it. What what a combo. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. Um, we'll, we'll come back for some final thoughts on Steel Magnolias, but we should get into our picks of the week. That sounds like a plan. Uh, Lindsay, what can you tell me about your pick of the week, Boys on the Side? Are you sure you don't want me to tell you how many armadillo cakes were made for Steel Magnolias? I think that's a good final thought. I have another final thought, but okay. Yes, I'd love to tell you. I'm shameless about loving romantic comedies, and Boys on the Side kind of starts out like one. It's super conventional, almost like, okay, I've seen this movie a billion times, two unlikely people forced into a situation, but I gotta say the meat and heart of this movie is anything but run-of-the-mill and still so worthwhile 25 years even after its release. This was the mid-90s, like when you could smoke in bars, people read newspapers instead of highlights on their phone, and oh yeah, no cell phones either. And also when America was edging into being able to discuss female empowerment and difficult misunderstood topics, say like AIDS. As always on this podcast, it's important to take into account the time period in which a movie was made, and I don't just mean the fashion. It's a snapshot of culture at the time and really does help track the progress that society makes over the years, even if it seems comically dated. Boys on the Side starts out like a road trip. Whoopi Goldberg plays Jane, a musician who's been doing the same thing for years, not wanting to admit that she's burned out, but still hanging on to the dream. Jane comes across a one ad for someone seeking a driver to go across the country, and her Robin played by Mary Louise Parker, who returns to shatter our hearts just like she did in Fried Green Tomatoes. And Robin's convinced they'd make perfect travel companions, so Jane joins who she calls the whitest woman in the world in her van, and they start their trip from New York, intending to make it to San Diego. They quickly become a trio after stopping to say hi to Jane's friend Holly, played by Drew Barrymore. Holly's boyfriend's in a rage, throwing her all around the apartment, accusing her of stealing his drugs. Like, it's a bad scene. Somehow, writer Don Ruse works humor into this horribly violent situation. I know that's a weird thing to say, but it does work here. The women end up tying up the boyfriend, who's conscious, but has been struck over the head with a bat by Holly. So let's cut to the chase. After the trio bolt, this could end up like a on-the-lamb type of story, but that's not where Ruse is taking us. In all their time together, Robin's never hip to Jane being a lesbian, nor does Jane question too much what Robin is so very obviously hiding until she collapses and is rushed to an emergency room. The sweetness and heart of the film grows deeper when we see the women bonding on the road. It's revealed that Robin has HIV, had no real plan when they set out on this cross-country trip, 
And then you've got Jane, who's looking to start a new life. Holly's escaping her abusive relationship. You get the picture that these women are in this deep and are together. At one point, Jane says to Robin, sometimes when you don't have any place to go, it's better to just stay where you are. So they decide to set up a new life all together right where they are, never making it to San Diego. This isn't where the story ends, but I'm not going to give anything else away. Suffice it to say, things escalate when Holly's drug dealer boyfriend is found dead. We'll end it there. Ruse knows just how to craft an engrossing, moving story and does so with this movie. He's written and directed two films I adore, The Opposite of Sex and Happy Endings, and expertly churns up emotions writing films like Marley and Me, Who Can Forget Single White Female, and Love Field. Goldberg and Parker really give you the good old-fashioned punches to the gut with her performances. And many of my favorite moments with Jane and Robin revolve around music in this movie. Like Robin weeping at the closing of the film the way we were as Jane chuckles and silently judges her newfound friend's straight sappiness. And at the very end of the film, which has to be one of the hardest scenes to sit through without crying, it's a beautiful moment when director Herbert Ross, who did Steel Magnolias, does a slow, full 360 pan around the room, full of people celebrating life, no dialogue, Robin attempting to sing a down-tempo version of the song You Got It, but she's too weak to finish, so Jane finishes it out for her. As the song closes, without breaking the flow of the scene and completing a full 360 pan, Ross then goes around the room again to reveal it now empty visually implying that one of our friends that we spent the whole movie with has just passed. Boys on the Side is a 51-49 split between a compelling drama and a heartfelt comedy. Goldberg and Parker have their fair share of funny moments, but it's Barrymore who's the winner here because we need her levity to balance it all out. She's not like a one-trick pony, and she gives just as moving a performance as her counterparts. Matthew McConaughey, James Remar... They both turn in some worthwhile performances, but very much play supporting roles in the movie, as the title of the film would imply. There's also a blink-and-you-miss-it moment with a fresh-faced before-she-was-famous Niecy Nash. Ruse captures the intimacy and unspoken truths between friends so well and boys on the side. The lesbian in love with a straight woman undercurrent never overpowers or cheapens the film, which I think with a less compassionate or maybe even straight writer, um, that would have probably happened. He brings such an emotional honesty to the film with every scene, and it's not just with this particular subject. Boys on the Side, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, was Herbert Ross's last film, and feels like a great way to end his very, very full career. Like he did with Steel Magnolias, Ross gives this story of friendship room to breathe, where in the end, we feel so close to the women in the story. It's been a bit since I've seen this one, but I'm so happy that I went back for this revisit. Um, everyone, you know, needs a good cathartic cry every now and again. I wanted to revisit this once you said you were doing it as your pick of the week, but I, I thought after multiple screens of Steel Magnolias, I was like, I gotta, I need to just <laughs> give myself a week time, you know, maybe watch a couple comedies and then I'll, I'll hit myself with a, an emotional drama. Yeah, I definitely did these guys back to back and it uh it was rough. I just walked around my apartment kind of just like I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> yeah, I I considered doing another like hard drama for my pick of the week and I was just thinking, do I want to do that to myself, you know? Like... <laughs> 
I always really love to give myself as many punches to the gut as possible. That doesn't really happen with postcards from the edge, does it? Uh, not really, you know. I mean, it, it it certainly does have its like emotional hits, but nothing it, to the to the likes of like a Still Magnolias or Boys on the Side. Sure. Well, tell me about it. I need to be reminded. It's been forever since I've seen it. Well, Postcards from the Edge, uh, much like Still Magnolias, somewhat based on a true story. Though Postcards from the Edge is is much more loosely based on uh, that of, of, of actress Carrie Fisher and her coping and dealing with uh, drug addiction and also having a famous mother that she's somewhat living in the shadows of. The movie directed by Mike Nichols, who I think is like the, the, the lone director in Hollywood who is doing like the very, you know, I think like intelligent adult dramas that take their time. I mean, if you're familiar with his works, you know that his movies can be that I think they can be loose at times, but they're always, you know, I'm very focused on the main actors, but they're always like really compelling adult dramas that uh, don't treat their audience like idiots. But with Postcards from the Edge, we have Meryl Streep playing uh, one of her few comedic roles. Uh, she's playing the role that is loosely based on Carrie Fisher, and she's uh, an actress at sort of the height of her fame, you know, she had a couple of big hits, but she's grown very addicted to cocaine and Percocets. And she's really like blowing it on in the beginning of the movie, which is a really cool, interesting, if you, if you like insider Hollywood movie type movies, uh, you'll really enjoy this. You know, it starts off very clever where, you know, she's in the middle of the scene and then, you know, the director yells cut. Director uh, played by Gene Hackman, you know, plays like this gruff Hollywood director who's who's worked with her before. And he's he's very frustrated because of her drug addictions, like starting to ruin her performances. Uh, eventually, the studio is like, you know what, you're a insurance liability to us and we can't uh we can't let you do any more movies unless you're going to be staying, you're going to rehab and you're going to be staying with someone who's stable. So she ends up having to stay with her famous mom, uh, played greatly by Shirley MacLaine, putting in another uh, performance of, of sort of that gruff, tough love, um, great comedic one-liners. So, you know, we've got some nice moments where they're living together. Uh, we also have some comedic moments where, uh, Meryl Streep's character is kind of slumming it in lower budgeted movies, which much like True Life, Carrie Fisher kind of did for a moment there. We have a couple special appearances by uh, actors uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Rob Reiner, and it, it's kind of great to see Rob Reiner in this because he had uh, just directed Carrie Fisher in When Harry Met Sally. The the one thing that the movie doesn't do, which I'm kind of surprised with, and I, I don't know if I like it or dislike it for that, is that it doesn't really delve into her addiction very much, like, and her coping with it, even though it's, like, such a big part of, of her character's, like, relationship to everything in the movie. Um, and even though she's in rehab, there's not a lot of... Uh, those scenes that you generally would see in like a drug drug addict rehab type movie. And I don't know if that's good or bad for this movie. You know, at times it felt like all over the place. Um, and maybe that was a point, you know, maybe because her life was so scattered, they were just kind of showing, you know, the ebb and flow of, of how she was like trying to cope with living with her mom and cope with, you know, trying to get a footing back, get a footing back in Hollywood and get back into some A-list pictures. So the movie kind of meanders for a little bit, but not in like a boring way whatsoever. And again, I feel like all of Mike Nichols movies kind of do that. They me meander a little bit, but 
you're still learning a little bit about the character and you're living with that character and those characters are interesting so it's okay that they meander overall it's it's a it's a really great film if you like Meryl Streep it's really cool seeing her in a comedic performance and she also uh, does a couple musical numbers in this movie and, and and she the movie ends with her doing a musical number and it immediately made me think of uh, a recent film that she did I, I believe it was Jonathan Demme's last film as a director before he passed away and that was uh, Ricky and the Flash which is a very underseen movie Meryl Streep like plays guitar and sings all the you know they're doing it there she's like plays in a cover band and uh, great film. Uh, I've, I've watched it several times, and, and the ending of this movie kind of made me want to rewatch Ricky and the Flash again. But Postcards from the Edge, I, I haven't read the book um, by, that this was based off of, but from what I've heard, the book is extremely heavy, and that uh, Postcards from the Edge, you know, they really kind of made light of a lot of the more darker moments that, that took place in the book. I can imagine, just knowing what I do about Carrie Fisher's life, yeah. From what I remember, and then learning subsequently about that, I remember thinking that about the movie. And Ricky and the Flash, Justin, great movie. I'm surprised I don't own that. Well, thank you so much for that. Do you, is that streaming somewhere right now? Uh, I, you know what? I forgot. To, I had the DVDs, but I did not you do. check. I do have the okay. DVD. Yeah. So I'll loan you that, but I did not check to see if it was streaming though. Okay. It seems like a pretty, like a movie that would be streaming at least to rent for, you know, on Amazon or YouTube. I feel like in, in the insomnia that I've been having lately, that would be a really good one to watch at two in the morning. Yeah. So those are your picks of the week, boys on the side and postcards from the edge. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. Laughing Through Tears is what Steel Magnolias was always about, the crux at the heart of the movie. And Billy's no stranger to the concept. Check out episode 32's Murray Moment, wherein Billy pays tribute to John Belushi for more on that. This moment, however, connects to Steel Magnolias in a closer way than you may expect. When Billy was only 17, his father, Edward, passed away from complications related to diabetes. Edward had a contrasting physical presence and candor compared to a typical family disciplinarian. He was thin and fragile because of the diabetes, but still managed to keep nine kids in line, you know, along with a little help from mom Lucille, of course. The Murray dinner table, as I've mentioned in many past moments, was the family's first stage, and the object here was to get dad to laugh. And you couldn't just spout out anything or else someone would cut you off. The youngest sibling, actor Joel Murray, has said that Brian and Billy were the funniest, but even their mom's dry wit was right up there with everyone else. Joel once told the Chicago Tribune that his pops was a slow eater because of diabetes, so the second half of the meal was trying to get him to laugh through his mouth and spit his food, Joel said. People who came to pick up my older brothers to go out, they would just come during dinner and just watch. At the dinner table, he was very dry and quiet, but always triggered to laugh, Billy told the New York Times in 88. 
It was just very difficult to figure out what would do it. It had to be good. It was like he was waiting, but he'd wait forever if need be. One time, Billy was doing this Jimmy Cagney impression, standing on his chair at the table, and he fell right off. He smacked his head good, and through the tears, he could see his father laughing, and it was all worth it in order to get that laugh. There was a lot going on with 11 people at the table. Using humor was Billy's strongest suit for winning Dad's approval because his grades and constant horsing around at school weren't gaining him any high marks at home. When my dad was alive, Joel told the Tribune, Nobody thought about being a comedian because in my dad's eyes, they would have been bums. But starting with Brian, that all changed after the Murrays became a family of ten. Edward's passing crushed them all in every thinkable way. The family wasn't well off to begin with, and after his passing, Lucille went back to work, leaving her nine kids to pitch in, help raise each other, and whoever could get a job would. I feel a little different than the rest of my family, Billy again told the Times. Having big success made me feel different. I ended up doing my father's job in some ways. There were roughly 10 years between Edward passing and Billy joining SNL. Obviously, a lot happened in between. In 77, when Billy was still known as the new guy who replaced Chevy Chase, he directly addressed the audience, confessing he knew he wasn't as popular as everyone else in the show, but he knows he can make it work. He goes for the sarcastic guilt humor, trying to garner sympathy points for being the middle child of nine siblings, and also telling the audience, oh yeah, my father died when I was 17. People always said to me, oh, you'll never grow up to be as funny as your dad, and now he's not around to see me be not as funny as him. At Edward's funeral, and here's a real Steel Magnolias moment for you, the Murray family was all crammed in a limousine. They were exhausted, devastated, and overwhelmed by the loss of Edward. And being the Irish black humorist they all were, some spirit came over them in that limo, and it was like the dinner table all over again. People were walking out of the church, crying their eyes out, thinking, my God, they must be so sad in that car, Billy told Rolling Stone in 81. But we were going, can you believe she's wearing that fur? Soon, nobody'd even say anything, and someone would walk out of the church and we'd just start roaring hysterically. The driver didn't know what to make of it. It was like the left-field bleachers in Wrigley Field. From the sound of it, I bet Edward would have gotten a real kick out of that moment, too. Laughter through tears, as we've learned this entire episode, is sometimes the involuntary, most cathartic reaction. And at the end of that SNL bit where Billy is indirectly asking people to write in and save him, he says this, I just want to make it as a not-ready-for-prime-time player, and when that's done, I'll be able to stand here on a Saturday night in the middle of Rockefeller Plaza and say, Dad, I did it. He'd like that. I think it's safe to assume that Mr. Murray would have been very proud of all of his nine kids today. That was a very Still Magnolia's uh, vibe happening for your Murray moment. Who knew there was even that more that, that big of a connection? That's wild and yeah. very sad. From everything that I've ever read, it's, it sounds like, um, I mean, obviously, everyone's parents mean a lot to them in, in various different ways. But when they both passed, it seems like it had a profound effect on everybody. Yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Anytime. Did you have any uh, final thoughts on Still Magnolias before we close everything out for this episode? Oh, I've got so many thoughts on Steel Magnolias, but probably one of the funniest things that I learned during one of the most heart-wrenching moments at, at Shelby's funeral, the big scene that Sally Field has. And this is something that'll take take the piss out of that scene for you. So Sally Field and everyone, they shot that over and over and over again. And, you know, with every scene, you're getting close-up shots of this character. And there's, you know, five people 
in that scene. You've got a lot of shots to do, and it's it's very dramatic. Anyway, Sally Field is so wonderful and over the top and just, like, nails that scene. Well, she did exactly what you see in the movie to the same degree every single time to get shots of Shirley MacLaine, to get shots of Dolly Parton. She was clenching, you know, clenching her fists and crying and just uh, over the top every single time. And I think that that is incredible and really shows what kind of an actor she is, that she's going to put every bit of herself into a role. And Shirley MacLaine during that scene came up to Sally and and said, if you're not able to turn up the tears anymore, I got a little secret for you. And she pulls out this mentholated rub that she's got watered up in a handkerchief. And she's got that, you can see it on screen, and just know that she's got a a big old glob, a mentholated rub in there. And uh, she said, just sniff this, and the tears will start flowing. And And if it doesn't happen, when you sniff it, you just put some in your eyes. It'll just start right up. <laughs> that kind of cracked me up a lot. It's awesome to hear that uh, Sally Field did that because I always hear so many stories of actors who once they make it big, you know, they, they do their lines and then they kind of get the hell out of there and go back to their trailer. And, yeah. you know, there's a stand-in that stands in so that the other actors can do their lines if it's a big scene like that for reaction shots. So that's awesome that she spent the time to give everybody a full performance so that they could react in the most emotional and genuine way i can only imagine for that scene that it would have been very helpful for herbert ross to to uh, have everybody on set instead of a stand-in yeah all right what's your final thought justin uh my final thought it was just a real quick one uh that i didn't realize this until we started researching for still magnolias but there was a uh adaptation of this into a tv show um, in 1990, and, and Robert Harling, the writer of, of the movie and play, he was involved and he wrote the pilot episode, which they shot, and it did air on television, but it didn't get picked up. I didn't watch the pilot. I did watch the little intro that they did for it, and it looked pretty low budget and like they didn't really have a, have a whole lot going for it. Um, it is uh, the Sally Field uh, character is played by Cindy Williams, um, and there's a couple other faces on the show that are um, actors that you you know have done a lot of television, but it uh, didn't make it past the pilot. It was one that did not get picked up, probably for the best. Really, I really don't think you can recapture the magic that was still Magnolia's the movie. And I love that Robert Harling was involved with it. I hope that it didn't you know, hurt his spirit in any way that it didn't get picked up because I mean, steel magnolias was made to remember Susan, you know, so everyone that ever came across it would think of Susan and she'd be remembered in some way. So I hope, I don't know, he's still so affected by, you know, that loss understandably. So I hope that didn't hurt, hurt his heart. Yeah. I just, sometimes, and I, I'm sure that there are adaptations of movies that were made into television shows, that weren't bad. I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now, but a lot of times I just feel like it kind of cheapens the original yeah. incarnation. And I feel like it really would have done that for still Magnolias. Cause it came, it, that movie was just such like a lightning in a bottle type experience. Yeah. Yeah. And the play is still going on today. That is a play I would really like to see. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, I guess we'll close things out for still Magnolias. <laughs> uh, really you know, feel like this is a movie that uh, if people haven't seen in a while, 
it's really worth revisiting. I mean, it, uh, it, it really surprised me how much I enjoyed this movie and, and kind of how hard it hit me. I never get tired of watching it in all the years. I can't even begin to guess how many times I've seen this, this movie. And every time the same amount of tears and, uh, man, watching it to the end credits and like knowing the story behind it and then seeing at the very end, oh, where it says like in the end credits, it says to Susan from Bob. I mean, geez, just like bring the house down, Robert Harling, please. Good Lord. That's such an amazing movie. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's well worth your time. It's so much more than, um, I think it being called a chick flick or whatever, you know, it's, it's so much more than that. Yeah. Well, we are, we are going to lighten the mood for next episode as we continue our Dolly December. We're going to end the year with our last episode of the year, and that's uh, Dolly Parton's uh, hit movie, 9 to 5. And uh, after that, we're going to probably take about a five-week break, you know, kind of over the Christmas holidays and New Year's and recharge and get, get ready for a whole slew of new episodes for you to ring in uh, 2021. And you can take that time to listen to maybe some old episodes you haven't listened to before. We've got them all uh, backlogged on our website. And yeah, really looking forward to next year. Yeah, and please do uh, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter at Don't Push Pause Podcast. If you want to reach us for any reason, you can always get a hold of us at Don't Push Pause Podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys.